Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hey, well, Shabbat Shalom. I want to welcome you all. I just want to welcome everyone watching uh, on our live stream on our YouTube channel. And uh, I want to encourage everyone uh, watching uh, and all, all the, the children here as well to uh, be taking notes during the service or if you're too young to make, draw a picture of what, something you heard during, during, during the message and then be able to discuss it afterwards with your family and with your parents uh, during the lunch hour. Uh, so we are uh, in a series uh, on the fruit of the spirit. Uh, today's part three. I would encourage you, if you've missed part one or part two, to please go back to our YouTube and to go ahead and watch that because each one builds on the, on the prior one. And so you're going to want to see parts one and two as, as, as well. Uh, so it takes part three. Today I want to talk about joy. Uh, and to get at that, I want us to look at Romans chapter five. So turn with me to Romans five, the first 11 verses. Romans five, beginning in verse one. And Paul writes this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Uh, and we rejoice. Here's our theme of joy. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Hmm. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Messiah died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die, uh, even for a righteous person. Although for a good person, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more, how much more should we now be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we ought, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having now been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also, here's the third time, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Amen. On the overhead, uh, one of the major themes of the Bible is that there is a huge difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. Uh, put another way, on the, on the overhead, uh, there's a huge difference between using your own willpower to suppress your, your self-centeredness uh, and, and your fear and your lust uh, and your pride. And it's another thing to have the Holy Spirit permanently change your heart. Not through willpower, but through the power of the Spirit of Messiah residing within you. Uh, and in this series that we're in on the fruits of the Spirit, we're looking at, at this very thing, at the characteristics of a supernaturally changed heart. So on the overhead, how do you know how do you know if you're just trying to be good or if the Holy Spirit has brought supernatural transformation into your life? Well, the way to know uh, this is to look at the fruit of the Spirit and compare your life to the spirit, these Spirit-filled inner character traits. So what are they? Galatians 5, 23 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the character traits of a supernaturally changed heart. We're going through each of these week by week, and today's number two, joy. Uh, And and so that's what we're looking at today. And this passage in Romans 5, Romans 5 tells us three things about joy. It tells us, number one, joy is important. Number two, biblical joy is unique. And number three, where this biblical joy comes from. So joy is important. Biblical joy is unique. Uh, And how do we get that joy? So first, joy is important. Look at the first verse, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Paul here is now summing up everything he's been talking about in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Uh, and he's giving us now a summation here. And what does his justification by faith mean, he asks us. And the overhead. Every other religion says, live as you ought to live. And then God will bless you and accept you. But only Messianic Judaism and Christianity says you receive God's blessings and acceptance as a free gift through faith because of Yeshua's record, not your record. And then you can and will live as you ought to live. Total reversal. Revolutionary. And so to be a Yeshua follower is to be someone who's justified by faith. You are peace with God. You're accepted by him because of what Yeshua has done. And now, what is the main mark of a real, Yeshua-following, spirit-led life? What's the main characteristic? Look at verse 2, Romans 5, verse 2. Paul says, now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Joy. And then in verse 3, he says this, Romans 5, 3. Not only this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And then in verse 11, Romans 5, 11. Not only, in this, so, not only is this so... But we also rejoice in God. Notice his emphasis on joy. Note the theologian John Stott. He writes this on this passage of Romans 5 in the overhead. He says, it seems clear from this passage that the main mark of a justified believer is joy. The major main mark of a believer is joy. This text is telling us that to live a life as a Yeshua follower is to live a life in joy. Indeed, to live life in general, you need a center of joy. Now, let's be honest. A lot of people today don't believe this. A lot of people believe that pursuing joy is a dead end. Uh, Over the last several decades, there's been a number of so-called happiness studies uh, and happiness psychology. Uh, Lots of books trying to explore what makes us happy and, and how to be happy. And, of course, there's tons of books also on positive thinking and how to take control of your life so that you can be happy. But by and large, the intelligentsia, uh, the intellectuals, the eastern elites uh, in the media and academia, uh, the pundits and the artists and the philosophers, they all hate this. All this talk about happiness. All this talk about joy. Uh, for example, our, our, the columnist uh, Amy Bloom recently wrote this in the New York Times. And she wrote this essay entitled, The Rap on Happiness. And it's on the overhead here. This is what she says. She says, smart people talk trash about happiness. And talk worse than trash about books on happiness. And we've done so for centuries. Because happiness studies and works on happiness psychology, uh, we don't see them as being the work of the devil, but the work of morons. <laughs> The real problem with happiness is not the pursuers or the books. It's happiness itself. It's transience. 
Uh, it's deep, but brief. The world passes away from us. The petals fall. The beloved dies. And no amount of fashionable scowling will keep us from savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from our adult understanding that it cannot last. Wow. Talk about a cynic. <laughs> now, what she's saying is this. She's saying, if you really want serenity in life, don't pursue happiness. Because anything you get joy from won't last. No matter what it is, it'll eventually disappoint you. So the only way to get serenity, is, is, is to, as she says, she says, is not to try to be happy, uh, not to try to pursue joy, because we all suffer disappointments in life. And it's easy for us to say, oh, that crushed me. You know, and I'm, I'm never going to give my heart to that again. And for some people, it's, I'll never give my heart to a man again. Or I'll never give my heart to a woman again. Or I'll never give my heart to this job again. Or I'll never give my heart to this religious congregation again. Or to this political or social cause again. And what happens is, because our hearts desperately want joy, and because our hearts are like this big vacuum pump that has this enormous amount of pull, and because it naturally tends to fix itself on something and say, this is going to make me happy. And when it disappoints, and it will disappoint, it will not last, then you say, okay, the only way I'm ever going to get serenity is to stop pursuing joy and to just pursue detachment. Indeed, that's what the religion of Buddhism is all about. That's what Buddhism teaches, the detachment. That's what the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, taught as well. Detachment. Don't give your heart to anything. That's the only way you'll be serene. Don't pursue joy. Don't pursue happiness. But there's a problem with that. Uh, Joseph Epstein, this noted scholar, recently wrote an article at the University of Notre Dame magazine, which he recounts one of these ancient Greek philosophers, Epicurus. And at one point, Epicurus gathered all his disciples together and told them, I can give you a four-step remedy for anxiety. I can eliminate anxiety from your life. You can be completely serene if you just do these four things. And then we have them on the overhead. Step one, don't believe in God or the gods. Step two, now you don't have to worry about death. Death is just oblivion, eternal, dreamless sleep. There's no God or gods, no heaven or hell, and therefore death is nothing to be afraid of. Uh, when you die, it's just like before you were born. The eternal, dreamless sleep. Step number three, don't be afraid of pain. Because either the pain will soon diminish and go away, or it will intensify, in which case death is near. But as we've seen, that's no problem. See step number two. <laughs> Finally, step number four. Don't attempt to acquire things or money or fame or power. Why? Don't set your heart on anything because if you try for them, you, you might not attain them. It's going to make you very unhappy. But even if you do attain them, they never give you the value that's as great as what you spent trying to attain it. The game's not worth the candle. So these are Epicurus's four steps for an anxiety-free life. Forget about God. Forget about death. Forget about pain. Forget about acquisition. And then he says, the only way to find serenity is to stop seeking joy. Detach yourself from everything. Don't attach your heart to anything. 
And now here's what Professor Epstein says in, in commenting on this, on his commentary, on the overhead. He says, my guess is that this program might work. But even if it did, would a life so utterly detached constitute a life rich and complex enough to be worth living? Some might say, yes, I am not among them. And of course, my favorite, C.S. Lewis, he puts it even better in the overhead. He says, if you don't want your heart to be broken, if you always want serenity, don't give your heart to anyone or anything. Put it in a little casket and make sure it never breaks. But in that casket, it'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. What Epstein and what C.S. Lewis are saying is that, yes, if you give your heart to anything, you may be disappointed. You may seek joy and be disappointed. But on the other hand, if you detach yourself, if you say, I'm not giving my heart to anything, that dehumanizes you. It hardens you. Uh, and so, is there any way forward? Yes. So point number one was, was the importance of joy on the overhead. But point number two is the uniqueness of messianic biblical joy. The messianic biblical joy gets you out of this dilemma on the overhead. How so? There are three ways in which biblical joy is unique. The first way is that biblical joy is not based on your circumstances at all. So look at verse 3, Romans 5, 3. We also rejoice in our sufferings. Wow. Now, what are sufferings? Suffering is favorable circumstances going away. And here's what biblical, here's where biblical joy parts way with happiness. Because biblical joy is not what the world calls happiness. What the world calls happiness is getting control of your life so that you keep circumstances favorable. In fact, if you go to, by the way, happiness.com, <laughs> you can find a surefire top five components, they say, for happiness. Five things that if you put your put these in place, this website says you'll be happy. So number one, it says be in possession of the basics, food, shelter, health, safety. Number two, get enough sleep. Okay. <laughs> number three, have relationships that matter to you. Number four, take compassionate care of others and yourself. Number five, have work that really interests and engages you. So, number one, get get the basics of food, shelter, health, and safety. Now, let's stop right here. Do you realize how absurd and ridiculous this is? Because most people in most places, in most centuries, have never had that. What are we going to do about the majority of the world's population who's never has enough food or shelter or health or safety? Even today, they never have it. And then you talk about engaging and interesting work. Most people in the world are lucky to have any job. So what this website is saying is that, and this is what the world believes, happiness is getting my circumstances in just the right place. So I'm happy if things are going well, if my circumstances are favorable. But what about most people in most places, in most times, who never have favorable circumstances? Are they doomed to no happiness? Yes, they're doomed to no happiness as our culture defines happiness today. But joy is available to them. And this biblical joy is not based on your circumstances at all. Now, when it says in verse 3 that we rejoice even in our sufferings, 
It doesn't mean that you rejoice for your sufferings. You don't say, yay, hurrah, we, I'm suffering. <laughs> That's called masochism. <laughs> we'll refer you to a good psychologist. <laughs> the text says we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, how do you rejoice in your sufferings if all your circumstances are going bad? Well, verse 11 tells us we rejoice in God. God is not subject to circumstances. And why do we rejoice? Look at verse 3, Romans 5, verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And that hope is in the future glory of God, which makes us rejoice. Look at verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And verse 3 says that suffering can actually give you more of this hope and therefore more of this joy. And what this is saying is that biblical joy, unlike worldly happiness, that not only can be maintained when circumstances are unfavorable, but it can even grow. In fact, it usually grows during times of suffering if you use it as an opportunity to press into the Lord. Worldly happiness disappears when things are bad. Because worldly happiness is based on having good circumstances. But biblical joy can actually get stronger. How? Do you remember how your mother would always say, don't eat candy before a meal. (laughs) Spoil your appetite. Why? Because candy gives you the sugar buzz, and so you don't feel hungry. Uh, But it then masks the fact that your body needs protein to grow and, and to restore and repair itself. And there are all sorts of things that your body needs that it doesn't naturally have by itself. So on the overhead, candy gives you a sugar buzz that masks the fact that your body needs nutrients uh, that you're not giving it. And in the same way, sex and money and power and success and worldly happiness, all these favorable circumstances are spiritual sugar. And so what happens is you say, oh yeah, I believe in God, uh, and I know I'm going to heaven. But in reality, you actually base your day-to-day joy and happiness on your outward circumstances, on the overhead. What happens, though, when these circumstances go away? You can use this actually as an opportunity to drive you more and more into God. Because when the sugar goes away, when the candy goes away, you're forced to go after the real feast that your soul really needs. To go after the spiritual nutrients your soul really needs. And again, on the overhead, what happens when things go bad is that God can use it to drive you into him so that you develop a poise and a power, develop a strong, deep joy that never goes away regardless of your circumstances. So number one, biblical joy is unique because it's not based on circumstances. Number two, biblical joy is unique because it's what I'm going to call already but not yet. Look at verse 2, Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This means that when you become a Yeshua follower, uh, uh, because your salvation is not based on your good works, your mitzvot, uh, your efforts, there's now a certainty and an assurance that you have about your future with God. All other religions say, if you live as you ought to live, then God will bless you. Which means, you believe the reason God's blessing me, the reason uh, uh, is, is I, because I've lived a good life. Uh, and I'm praying, I'm doing all, these, all the right things. But that also means you have no certainty, you have no assurance about your future, spiritually. Uh, because what if you start to do something, you do something wrong? What if you fail? What if you mess up? 
What if you don't keep up your level of obedience? You can never be sure. Uh, you cannot see the future. You might go off the path. You don't know. In a religion in which your salvation is essentially earned by you, there will always be an anxiety and an uncertainty about your future. So, for example, if you ask a Muslim if you're going to heaven, they don't know. I've spoken to many Muslims about this. They say, I hope so, uh, Allah willing. They even think it's arrogant to claim any certainty about this. And so because of that, they're constantly trying to earn and merit their future salvation. But Yeshua faith is unique from all other religions. Yeshua faith alone says, Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. And therefore, if you're abiding in Yeshua, it's absolutely certain that one day you will share in the hope of the glory of God. And you'll live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And when you get there, into Yeshua's presence, you're going to say, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land, the land I've been looking for all my life, but didn't know it. And the knowledge of that, it's, it's not yet, but it's there. It's coming. That gives you hope. Now, the word hope in the Bible does not mean, I hope so. It's not an uncertainty. Hope in the Bible is a life-shaping certainty of something that you are going to have, but you don't have it quite yet. And, and our understanding of, of this future hope uh, uh, and the biblical text about it, uh, that it, this is a grounding for you. Uh, it's, a, it's poise creating. When your outward circumstances are troubling, and but you know you have this certainty about your future, this glory of God you'll be with, it's, it's already but not yet. Uh, that, 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 that gives you this, this, this amazing joy. Uh, but that's not even all you have. When things are going poorly, your future glory is assured. But that's not all you have. Uh, look at verse uh, three, uh, three to five, Romans first three. Suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and this hope does not disappoint. Why not? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Now, what does this word pours out mean? Doesn't mean that God just tells you that he loves you? No. Doesn't mean that you just intellectually know God loves me? No. This is the third thing. Joy, number one, joy is unique because it's not based on circumstances. Number two, it's based on this future hope. Uh, uh, and number three, this phrase poured out is a way of expressing experience. This, on the overhead, this is saying that sometimes the feast that you know you're going to have in the future, on the overhead, please, uh, this feast you know you're going to have in the future, you get the hors d'oeuvres now. You get a foretaste now. And the overhead. That glory that you're going to have in the future, sometimes you experience it now. And this is the very heart of biblical messianic joy. The joy that's available to you through Yeshua and through the infilling of His Holy Spirit right now. It's a foretaste of that glory. And the overhead. Our Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, he puts it like this. Sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. So the immediate testimony of the Holy Spirit comes to us saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred up 
and comforted with joy inexpressible. This, this joy has degrees. Sometimes it's clear and strong that we, that, that we, and therefore we question nothing. Other times doubts soon come in. Uh, now it's not an audible, it's not an audible voice. Rather, it's a ray of glory filling your soul. It's like the word of Yeshua to Miriam. The Lord only said her name in the garden, Miriam. Uh, and, and, and it filled her soul. So she no longer doubted she was his. How glorious is this manifestation of the Spirit? Now you won't have this messianic biblical joy uh, which roots and grounds you. No matter what the circumstances, you won't have it if you rely on worldly happiness, which is based on favorable circumstances, and which therefore is fragile and fleeting. And the overhead. Moreover, you won't have this messianic biblical joy unless sometimes you experience the love of God direct to your heart through prayer. It's the foretaste of that future glory. The foretaste of the already here but not yet. Now, it doesn't happen a lot. It doesn't happen constantly. Sometimes it's very high. Sometimes it's kind of low. It often goes away fast. But you know it when it happens and you experience this pure joy. And it strengthens your knowledge of your salvation. Because you know you're saved by grace through faith. You know that the glory of God is your destiny. And at the same time, you've got a subjective and an objective nature. Uh, you're not only your mind, you're your heart as well. And the scripture says that biblical messianic joy gives you what you need for both your mind and your heart. And this answers the dilemmas we talked about in the, in the beginning of the first point. That many of this, uh, many things in this world are great, but if we ever give our heart to them, inevitably we get disappointed. And so we want to detach. But then we don't rejoice in things. True biblical joy solves this dilemma. C.S. Lewis, he wrote an autobiography, and the name of his autobiography was Surprised by Joy. And it discusses how he, before he became a believer, he was always trying to find joy in various different things. And whenever he found something that he thought would give him joy, he would binge on it. So, for example, he read an Icelandic uh, saga, and he loved it. He said, I want to get that feeling back again. When I, back when I first read it, it was so exciting. So what did he do? He goes out and reads every Icelandic saga in existence. <laughs> and that wasn't enough. So then he goes and learns Icelandic, which is Old Norse. Uh, so he can read them in the original language. <laughs> but he discovers that the joy he was expecting never quite comes through. So then he gets a new friend. And there's often nothing more wonderful than spending an evening talking with a friend. So he would binge on the friend. Every night, let's get together, let's talk. Well, after a while, the friend would say, uh, not tonight. <laughs> and not the next night either, or the next one after that. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, he would binge. At one point, he starts to realize, hey, there's a God behind this joy. And he's moving towards becoming a believer. And he says this, I'm putting on the overhead, he says, I came to realize that the books or the music in which I thought was the beauty or the joy was located in, they betrayed me if I trusted in them. Because the joy was not in them, it only came through them. These things through which the joy and the beauty come, if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they aren't the joy itself. 
those things which bring it. They're only like the scent of a flower we haven't yet found. The echo of a tune we haven't yet heard. The news from a country we haven't yet visited. And then at the end of the book, he now has become a Yeshua follower. And he says this on the overhead. He says, for many years I thought, the joy's here, the joy's there. And I go to that landscape, or to those set of friends, or to this book, or to that music. But I ultimately realized that the joy was coming from God through these various things. It's kind of like this. Say you're lost in the woods, and you first come upon a signpost. That's a big deal. And the first one who sees the signpost in the woods says, look. And the whole party gathers around and stares and says, ah, that's the direction. But if you found the road, and you're passing signpost after signpost every few miles, you don't stop and stare at all the signposts anymore. They encourage you, and you're grateful for the authority that erected them. But we won't stop and stare at the signposts once you know the way. Though their pillars be of silver and their letterings of gold. Why? Because we'd rather be at the destination and not stop at the mile marker. We'd rather be in Jerusalem. Do you see his point? If you're, if you're lost, if you see a signpost, you get excited. But when you know your way, when you know the thing to which the signpost points, you don't stop and stare at the signposts. When you realize that all these things he was pursuing, or that you pursue, or that I pursue, food, Friends, relationships, literature, success, acclaim, popularity, money, all these things we think will bring us joy are mere signposts. Now, some of these things are great, and we can enjoy them within biblical parameters. But don't mistake the signpost for the thing which they're signing, the thing to which they're pointing, which is the city of God, which is God himself. And that gets you out of either being afraid of enjoying things in this world or, or resting your heart too much in these things. And now finally, number three, point number three. How, on the overhead, how do you find this joy? Where does true biblical joy come from? The last part of our passage, verses 6 to 11, tells us. And it's really a, a summary of the gospel. So look at Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Messiah died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? On the overhead. Now, what is this wrath of God? Sounds kind of ominous, huh? The wrath of God is his judicial opposition to evil. It's a settled judicial opposition to injustice. And the human race deserves punishment. Why? Because we have participated in evil and injustice. But Yeshua while we were still sinners, that's grace. Before we cleaned up our life, while we were still sinners, Yeshua took that wrath. He took the condemnation. He took the punishment. That's the gospel. Now, how does that bring us joy? Two ways. On the overhead. Number one, the gospel shows you the magnitude of your danger. The first part of the gospel, uh, the negative part, uh, you're a sinner, you're lost, you deserve punishment, you deserve wrath. That sounds pretty bad, right? But that means that we now realize the size of the debt. Uh, I'm sorry. This, yeah, the size of the debt and the magnitude to which of what we deserve, of the punishment we deserve, which we weren't aware of before. So let's imagine you go on vacation, and your friend agrees to house sit uh, for you. 
Uh, and you come back and your friend says, you know, while you were gone, this bill came for you and I paid it for you. I took care of it. I paid it. Uh, don't worry about it. Okay, how should you respond to your friend who, who paid that bill for you? And the answer is, you have no idea how to respond because you don't know the size of the debt he paid for you yet. <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know how big the bill was. Was it five cents postage due on a package? In which case you casually would say, thanks. <laughs> but what if the IRS finally found where you live? <laughs> what if they finally found out and this bill was for 10 years of back taxes and interest and penalties and you know you have no way of ever paying and you're about to lose your house and that's what your friend paid for for you well in that case you are eternally grateful <laughs> so until you know the size of the bill the size of the debt you don't know whether to say thanks Or to fall at his feet as if dead, crying out, you saved me. (laughs) You don't know how grateful to be. You don't know how joyful to be. Until you know the size of the debt that was paid for you. One of the reasons you get so upset about your financial debts and your financial problems is that you don't realize that the great debt, the only debt that could really sink you, the debt of sin, has been paid. And when you see that, all the debts, no matter how great they seem, are tiny by comparison. You see, from the outside, the idea that that you're more wicked than you ever dared believe about yourself, and that you deserve wrath and punishment and judgment, that sounds like bad news on on the overhead. But from the inside, once you embrace the gospel... And you realize that all these years, the sort of Damocles was hanging over your head and you didn't know it. When you see the magnitude of the debt and the magnitude of your danger, and you realize you've been delivered from all this, it produces a joy in you that never goes away. If you accept the bad news of the gospel, that you are a sinner and you need salvation, then once you receive the good news of the gospel and trust in Yeshua, then from the inside, it creates a joy that never ends. You say, okay, I've got debts. I've got even diseases. But the only debt that can really sink me has been paid in full. And the only disease that can really kill me, kill me eternally, it's been healed. Because no matter what happens in this life, I have got the hope of the glory of God. The real disease has been healed. And the real debt has been canceled. From the overhead. So the first thing the gospel does is show you the magnitude of your danger. The second and final thing it does is show you the magnitude of Yeshua's pain. John 16, in the night before his death, Yeshua's trying to comfort his disciples. He says this in John 16, verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby's born, she forgets about her anguish. Because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And then you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Now, in this analogy, very interestingly, maybe the only time in the whole scriptures, in this analogy, Yeshua is identifying with the woman. Now, nowadays, you know, women in childbirth, of course they have pain, but we have modern medicine and we have painkillers like epidurals. But in Yeshua's day, women gave birth through excruciating pain and women routinely died in childbirth. 
And thus the only way for a woman to give birth to a new baby and the joy of that new life was for her to go through this tunnel of anguish and pain and danger. And Yeshua is saying here in John 16, that's what's happening to me. I'm going to the cross, to the tree, to the execution stake. I'm like this woman who's giving birth. She's giving birth to joy, to new life, by going through all this anguish. And here's how you now can develop this joy. You look and say, Yeshua, you lost all that joy so that I could have eternal joy. You, Yeshua, experienced enormous anguish so that I could have new life. And that's how the love comes. This is the key to joy. Look at Romans 5, verse 5. God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Here's how it happens. Here's, I'm sorry. Here's how it happens. You look at all Yeshua has done for you. You see him saying, I'm like the woman who lost her life so that, you, so that I could bring new life, your life, into the world. I'm like the woman who lost her joy in order to bring you joy. And you look at what he's done for you. Uh, and that's what the power of the Spirit produces a joy in you that shows you how loved you really are. And that joy will, be, will, will enable you to handle anything in this life, no matter what your circumstances are. On the overhead. So the, so the two ways the gospel gives you joy is number one, it shows you the magnitude of your danger, which is so great that all, all the other problems seem small by comparison to the one real problem that's now solved by you repenting and trusting in Yeshua and his death and resurrection. And number two, you, sh- you see what Yeshua has done for you. You see what he's given up for you. you see all the, that he lost all, all his joy in order to give you joy. And you meditate on that, and you pray over that, and then the Holy Spirit gives you a sense of God's love on your heart. And this gives you the power to handle anything, and gives you joy inexpressible, as Yeshua's love is shed abroad in your heart. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Father, hallelujah. We thank you for your word today. We ask you to give us a supernaturally changed heart, Lord, today. Not just a morally restrained heart. We don't want to just use our willpower to suppress our flesh, Lord. No, we want and we need your spirit to transform our motives and our desires from within. Help us to develop these fruits of the spirit, Lord, in our life. These godly character traits of love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, fill us today with your joy. Your joy is our strength. We want and we need your supernatural joy, a joy that transcends and isn't based on our circumstances, a joy that can exist even in the midst of our suffering. Because, Lord, you tell us our suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And this hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because it's based on you, Lord. This hope is based on your promises and our future glory in you. It's here now, but it's not yet. So we hope with complete certainty. And that hope fuels our abiding joy in you, Lord, and your soon coming. And your spirit, Lord, abiding in us now, filling us, immersing us, baptizing us, anointing us, gives us a supernatural joy that we can experience now as you pour your love into our soul, as you shed your love abroad into our hearts, joy inexpressible.
pure, liquid joy. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for dying the death we deserved to die and paying the price we could never pay. And as we meditate on that, let us fill, that, fill us with your joy. For we pray this in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.